Unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And coming up on the show today, we will talk to Paul Lucas, the man behind the UniWatch website. Celebrating 20 years behind this endeavor. We will talk about that. And of course, uniforms. Paul Lucas standing by in the virtual green room, and he will join us in just a moment. Well, you know, we are a midweek podcast, so we don't do Overreaction Monday. Maybe we uh, call it Over the Top Tuesday from all the football headlines that people will sway way too far to one side on. One after only one week, and two because the NFL in particular is a week-to-week business. So we start with Cleveland, the Browns. They did not win the Super Bowl in week one. The trendy playoff and Super Bowl pick was defeated in their first effort, losing to Tennessee. And I don't know about you, but Baker Mayfield looks a little doughy. looks a little out of shape. (laughs) Maybe doing too many beers at Cleveland Indians games, right? And of course, Odell Beckham Jr. Already starting his distraction ways, wearing a $250,000 watch onto the field. Nothing says, hey, look at me more, right? Odell Beckham. Yep, I guarantee you he is going to implode on this team at some point in the 2019 season. Kyler Murray, the man that succeeded Baker Mayfield at Oklahoma, he had an interesting debut in Arizona against the Detroit Lions. Was pretty much awful for three quarters. Couldn't get the ball over the line of scrimmage. So everybody's all thinking, okay, he's too small to play quarterback in the NFL. But then they got on a roll and come from behind to tie the Detroit Lions. And uh, they got it to overtime. Neither team could score. But, uh, you know, Kyler Murray giving you a little bit of hope there that uh, he's got a little it factor. And, boy, it does help. You know, I, I, I tweeted this out. I have run out of words to describe Larry Fitzgerald's greatness. (laughs) This guy, what, 15, 16 years in the league, he's still a top-notch receiver. He's, he's, and he's just a class guy and gets the job done. And uh, again, a a great teammate. And, you know, you just hope, he's certainly going to be in the Hall of Fame. Missed out on his chance to win the Super Bowl, but... uh, you know, he did get there in the Kurt Warner era, but, uh, you know, it's just a, just a shame that uh, he's not going to wear a Super Bowl ring. Uh, and, and he's come back the last two seasons to help out the franchise. He could have easily retired already and not put up a team a team that's rebuilding all the time, but he goes ahead and, uh, and still contributes to the franchise he loves. The Dallas Cowboys romp over the New York Giants, so Kellen Moore looks like a genius as offensive coordinator, at least for this week. <laughs> but he did have a an unpredictable game plan, which Scott Linehan was uh, prone to be. And Dak Prescott, with a perfect passer rating and just throwing dimes all over the place, raising his value in his contract negotiations. The Tampa Bay Bucks they are still terrible. Jameis Winston throws three picks, and I don't know why they decided to bank on continuing with him at quarterback. They were hopeful that Bruce Arians can fix him, but I just think he's too hard-headed and can't take coaching. 
Antonio Brown. How about uh, he's become a regular topic on this show. Forced his way out of Oakland, gets signed by the New England Patriots. So, you know, I was under the impression that he did, maybe didn't want to play football anymore. He just didn't want to play for the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> and he pretty much picked a skirmish anywhere he could. You know, getting into a heavy confrontation with Gia Mike Mayock. They go to suspend him. Then he apologizes, so they're going to let him play, which would would have been a bad precedent for sure, given all the trouble. And so they continue to find him. He records John Gruden, and puts out a video. Production value was great on it, by the way, but uh, <laughs> he was just pushing every button he could to get the heck out of there. And he got his wish. And now he's playing for a Super Bowl contender. ESPN on Monday Night Football, a very interesting uh, development there. They uh, uh, had the, uh, the marker cam. I like that. So they had a little pylon that it would stick with the first down marker and would show a camera angle on whether a player made a first down or not. Very nice. I like that innovation. And um, on the flip side of that, I guess on the score bug, they were putting the down and distance in yellow, and people were complaining about that on social media because it looks like, you know, everybody, hey, why is there, is there another penalty or what is it? And <laughs> they changed the, the color of it, went to a basic black and white, and then had, had it go yellow when there, was a, when there was a penalty instead of having it be yellow and changing to a different color for the penalty. So social media making... Graphics decisions on production teams mid-game. Couple of notes: College football. Hey, Nick Saban says Alabama's gonna will play anybody. He was questioned about their schedule, and he says, "Well, you know, you guys want to pick up the phone and make the call. We just can't get anybody to play us." <clears throat> Team in East Orlando certainly would like the shot. Oh, wait a minute! Nick Saban did not say. Well, we'll play anybody, but only on our terms, and we will not travel to their stadium. Thank you very much. Army almost pulls the upset on Michigan. Oh, man, I was rooting so hard for the cadets in that one. They put up a terrific battle and uh, went to overtime. Jim Harbaugh breathes a big sigh of relief. (laughs) That would have been a huge upset at home. But nonetheless, a great effort by Army. And the UCF quarterback situation just got juicier. So last week, Dylan Gabriel got the start over Brandon Wimbush at Florida Atlantic. And they rolled to a big win. The running game was really the primary uh, uh, emphasis on that. It's Adrian Killens and Greg McCray, Otis Anderson scoring touchdowns. And now, news comes Monday that DJ Mack is eligible to play. So Mack would have been the front runner coming into the season to retain the starting quarterback job that he, when he took over for the injured McKenzie Milton at the end of last season. So what do you do here if you're Josh Heupel? My personal feeling is I don't one, don't think he can go back to Brandon Wimbush at this point. He was held out, was not 100%, but we really don't know. Was he injured? What was the deal? Uh, UCF at the government level of keeping secrets. 
And I don't know that you can go back to, to BW. I think it's Gabriel's job. And I wouldn't be surprised if Daryl Mack was the second man up, if needed, against Stanford on Saturday. Our pleasure to welcome to the show today the man behind the Uniwatch website, serving uniform nerds like me for now 20 years. So not only do we say welcome, but we say happy anniversary to Paul Lucas. Paul, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Paul, take me back to the beginning. So what led you to develop this website, and what was the realization that there'd be a big audience out there for, for a website like this? Well, I wasn't so, so sure there'd be a big audience, but I spent uh, a lot of my uh, a lot of the 1990s, a lot of the 1990s, writing about uh, consumer culture, mostly as it pertained to design. So I was writing a lot about package design, brand design, industrial design, uh, things like that, and I and often in excruciating detail, like I was getting down to really subtle nuances, uh, very geeky stuff, and I realized I could take that same filter and apply it to sports, and I realized I had internalized, uh, through my youth uh, and my early adulthood, I had uh, internalized a lot of knowledge and a lot of opinions about uniforms, and I'd never really expressed any of that, and there was really no template for that. There, no, Nobody, to my knowledge at that point, had ever really written much about sports uniforms, and I thought I wanted to create that. I wanted to create, uh, at the time, not a website, but a column column uh, that was about uniforms, and so I, I went to various places like ESPN, the magazine, uh, which at the time was was very new. This was in the late 90s. This was around 1998 or so, mm-hmm. um, and at that time, the, uh, the the sports media world wasn't ready yet <laughs> for, for uh, a, a media project about uniforms, and so uh, ESPN, the magazine, turned me down. Sports Illustrated turned me down. Um, ironically, I'd end up writing for both of those. <laughs> those uh, venues later on, uh, and some other high-profile places turned me down, uh, and so I set my sights a little lower, and I went to the the sports editor of the Village Voice, which was an all-weekly paper here in New York City where I live, uh, and they had a sports section that, in a lot of ways, was was sort of like what Deadspin is now. Um, a lot of very cantankerous, kind of unusual, atypical sports coverage. Uh, they had a guy who just wrote about hockey fights, for example. <laughs> Um, just the fights, and, which now would be like not so unusual. There are probably plenty of blogs about that. But in 1998 or 99, that was pretty unusual. And I thought, you know, if they have that kind of content, maybe they could wrap their head around this this uniform thing I was trying to, to sell. Uh, and they got it right away. And that's how UniWatch was born as a, a column in the Village Voice. Uh, it ran there for a few years. Then it was briefly at Slate.com. Uh, and then I was able to convince ESPN.com to pick it up, and I began writing for them in 2004. And at some point, uh, I was a little frustrated that I could only write every 10 days or so for them. And I, I, blogs were becoming a thing um, at that point, and I thought, what if I had a daily blog about this? And I, I went to ESPN and said, no, maybe I can write about this every day, not just every 10 days or you know, every week. And they said, uh, we don't think we want you to do it every day for us, but if you want to do it on your own, like every day, and as long as you do the little stories on this blog thing you're talking about and keep doing the big stories for us, 
knock yourself out. And, and I think their their attitude really at that time was to sort of pat me on the head and say, like, yeah, yeah, every day, sure, you can do it every day. Go ahead, have fun with that. Like, you know, I don't think they thought I could actually do it. Uh, and that's how the UniWatch blog was born in 2006, and, and here we are, I'm, I'm still going with that. And so, uh, yeah, this year, the overall UniWatch project turned 20, uh, 20th anniversary since that first column ran in the Village Voice, and the UniWatch blog uh, has now had daily uniform coverage uh, for over 13 years. So what do you think drives people to thirst for knowledge about uniforms? Uh, well, you know, uniforms are what we see and what we root for when we watch sports. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld has famously referred to it as rooting for laundry. <laughs> uh, you know, because uh, uh, when, when you think about it, it's a really intense form of brand loyalty to root for a team. Uh, usually... Um, you know, if, if you're loyal to a brand, whether it's a, you know, a beer or a breakfast cereal or whatever it might be, it's because you like the product and, and the product has a certain consistency uh, and, and you can depend on that consistency. In sports, the, there's really no consistency because the players, the, the product is the players and the players are constantly changing, right? Like they get traded, they retire, they leave the team via free agency, they get injured, etc. And so there's, there's no consistency and your team can be really good one year and really bad the next year, uh, but you still keep rooting for that team or against that team if it's a team that you hate. Uh, you keep rooting for that logo and for those colors and that uniform, and, and really it doesn't matter who's wearing the uniform, you keep rooting for that uniform, and that is a really intense bond uh, between the fan and the team. It's really between the fan and the uniform. Uh, I, I like to use the example that, uh, let's say I'm a Mets fan, which I am, uh, and let's further say that I hate the Yankees, which I do. <laughs> um, so this isn't exactly a hypothetical. It's a, it's a real-life example. Uh, if the entire Mets team were traded tonight for the entire Yankees team, like straight up, 25 guys for 25 guys, um, which, you know, right now that's not going to happen because the Yankees are a much better team. wouldn't be a fair trade. But let's just say it happened. Who would I root for tomorrow? And to me, it's really obvious. I would root for the 25 guys wearing Mets uniforms, even even though they were 25 guys who I hated the day before. Now, that makes no sense. It's not rational. And that is the power of a uniform. That is pretty uh, pretty strong, in, especially with the bond issue uh, that you talk about. So you've seen uniforms and you know past, present, all that good stuff. What, in your estimation, makes a great uniform? Um, it depends, you know, it, it can depend on, uh, on the sport. Uh, in general though, I think what really makes a good uniform is, is the, the idea of creating something that looks good on the field. Now that may seem obvious, but there was a time when that was the first question that was asked, you know, that a team would ask itself, like what's going to look good on the field. That is now about the third or fourth question that gets asked. The first question is, is it going to sell at retail? Yeah. And and once that is your primary question, and and whether it looks good on the field is the sort of subordinate question. That is, you're you're basically off track, and that is why so many of the classic uniforms from an era that 
predates uh, retail merchandising of jerseys and caps, uh, so many of those are the ones we think of as classic and that have stood the test of time. You know, the Green Bay Packers or the Yankees or, um, I mean, see, I, I mentioned the Mets before, um, who've had, like, a few digressions in their uniforms but are basically wearing the same thing they started out with in the early 1960s. Now, from 1962 to 68, the Mets were arguably the worst professional sports franchise in the history of pro sports. Uh, nowadays, there would be a, a clamor to change the uniforms because like, it's associated with failure, you need to rebrand, you need to reboot, uh, and you've been this awful, awful team. And of course, in 1969, they ended up winning the World Series. And, and I, I would argue that during that period when they were an awful-looking team, they were one of the best, they, they were an awful-performing team, rather, awful-performing team, but I would argue they were one of the best-looking teams. And they still are. Mets have great uniform, and I don't just say that because I'm a Mets fan. Uh, and and they, they basically st- stuck with their design. That's one uh, that, in my opinion, has stood the test of time. And you look at some of the more, you know, the newer franchises that don't have any roots, that don't have any heritage, that basically were born in the retailing era, the, the merchandising era, uh, and they, you can see, they're, they're more like, they stick their finger in the wind, what's the trendy color, uh, what's, you know, the, the what's going to sell at retail, and of course, only younger fans buy the stuff at retail, so you're really just trying to sell the uniform to a certain subset of your fan base, uh, and, and I think it shows, and those teams tend to have a more revolving door approach to their uniforms. Look at the Arizona Diamondbacks, who I, I mentioned in part because while we're talking here, I have the Mets game on, and they're playing the Diamondbacks <laughs> in the background on my TV. Uh, and they have only existed for a little over 20 years, but they've had three major eras with three different sets of colors in their uniforms. They started off with that purple and teal, which was the uh, like the trendy colors of the of the 90s, basically, for uniforms for a lot of teams and a lot of sports. Then they changed it to that uh, sort of Sedona red with the kind of uh, southwestern-looking uh, lettering on the on the jersey, uh, and then they went to this weird, uh, you know, kind of snakeskin pattern on the shoulders and the very, very dark, uh, not just a road gray, but like a road charcoal uniform. The gradient uh, kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so they haven't, they haven't been able to stick to one thing. They've had more, like, radical changes in a little over 20 years and some more established teams have had over, you know, generations and generations. And part of it is that they're from an era, sort of a short attention span era, uh, that, that every team is currently playing in, but that certain teams were born into. And when you're born into that, uh, your fans sort of, they demand more stimulation. They want, you know, they say, like, let's change things up. Uh, they don't have that deep heritage to draw upon. Imagine if the Green Bay Packers changed change their uniforms three times in 22 years, like major, major changes, changing the team colors, uh, changing the primary logo, et cetera. Uh, there'd be like a revolt. They'd have to, <laughs> you know, the, the, the pitchforks and the, the torches out in Green Bay. Um, now, I happen to think the Packers uniform is a good one, and I, and I don't mean to suggest that, that change is always bad or that sticking with something is always good. Um, but I do think that a lot of teams just do change for change's sake or change with fashion rather than, um, you know, sticking with what, what actually works as a good design. 
Before I ask you about some teams in this region of the country, if you had to pick an all-time number one uniform on your list, which one would that be? Of any team in any sport? Yes. Uh, I would probably go with the uh, like the mid to late 60s St. Louis Cardinals baseball uniform. I, people always say the Yankees have the most classic uh, baseball jersey. I, I think the birds on the bat that the Cardinals have is every bit as iconic and classic as the Yankees interlocking NY, um, and it's more you know graphically, visually interesting. Uh, I love those birds perched on the bat. Uh, in the mid to late 60s, you had uh, the, this sort of lightweight flannel that baseball was using. Um, it was still flannel, but it wasn't as heavyweight flannel as some of the earlier eras. It was tailored a little tighter. I love the way the players wore their uniforms in those days. They cuffed the pants at just the right right level for me. Uh, you know, the Cardinals had those great uh, striped stirrups. Well, when I when I look at baseball from that era, and that's not an era I grew up in. I, I mean, I was born in 1964 myself, so I, I didn't see the Cardinals, and I, I've only seen uh, old photos. But when I when I look at that, I, I see that, and I think. Yeah, that's what baseball's supposed to look like. Yeah, well, I'm there from board in 64 as well, so I, and, and I can kind of relate along with exactly what you're saying there. Um, so talking about some teams in the state of Florida, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I mean, it, when I see a team wear a uniform like that, I almost want to say, okay, the boss likes it and nobody wants to tell him no. <laughs> and you wonder, how does this yeah, stuff seem light of day? You know, it's a, it's a fine line between uniform and costume, uh, but I think we all can sense when a uniform is on the wrong side of that line, and the Bucks seem like they're on the wrong side of it. Mainly, not exclusively, but mainly because of those uniform numbers, the jersey numbers that everybody calls digital alarm clock numbers, and they really do look like digital <laughs> alarm clock numbers. And it's just, yeah, it's it's, it's one for the uh, the what were they thinking files, right? Uh, they have other issues like the uh, you know the, the logo on the helmet I think is too big. Uh, and a few other things, but, uh, oh, man, those numbers. I mean, it just sort of announces itself very prominently, like, don't take this seriously. <laughs> and the Miami Dolphins, you know, they've, uh, when will they listen to, it seems to me like their fan base wants them to go back to the classic 70s look, you know? It does seem that, or at least from, from fans I hear from, um, you know, the people who are happy with it, maybe, uh, you know, there's always the possibility of the silent majority, right? Uh, I would say when when the Dolphins went to their current look, a lot of people did not like the new helmet logo, and they said it looked like a SeaWorld logo or something like that. I gotta say, I'm okay with the current logo. It seems like a reasonable evolution from their old logo. I like the old logo, too, and I, I, I prefer the old logo, but I don't think the new logo is awful. What I think is awful, again, not, not to harp on this uniform element, is the numbers, the uniform number, numbers that look like they, they're supposed to be like a snub-nosed dolphin's out or something like that, you yeah. know, the way they're round, the serifs are rounded, um, and it just looks, it, it, it just doesn't look right. And, and yeah, when you compare it to the 70s and 80s look, um, they, they had it right then, and when, whenever the Dolphins wear throwbacks, I hear from so many people who say they should go back to this full-time, like go back to it full-time, and that seems to be the consensus opinion. And, yeah, I'm not sure why ownership doesn't really listen to that, except that owners like to think that they're putting their own stamp on a team, right? They, they don't like to think they're going backwards or that, you know, oh, yeah, that's when so-and-so on the team and it's his uniform. And they like to, you know, make it theirs. And sometimes that, that just doesn't work. And, uh, you 
know, people listening to this may be thinking and, and hearing me talk about some of these older uniforms like the Packers and the old Cardinals, and they may say, oh, there's this Paul Lucas guy, he's a traditionalist. And, and I always push back against that, and I say, I'm not a traditionalist, I'm a classicist. <laughs> and the difference is that a traditionalist says, never change, because change is bad. A classicist says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the Dolphins were not broke. Like, yeah. that uniform was fine, that uniform worked. Uh, but they insisted on fixing it, and I think they, they fixed it for the worse. And I, I think, uh, again, there's always that chance of a silent majority, but my impression is that most fans seem to agree. And the Jaguars, to me, look like a team that they, they've never really achieved a classic look. Uh, you know, I actually disagree with that a little okay. bit. To me, the Jags' initial uniform set... Uh, you know, the one they were born with, uh, that had a chance of being a modern classic. I love, like, the Mark Brunel era Jaguars, uh-huh. to me. I, I love that uniform. I really do. Um, I, the, the combination of the, the turquoise and gold, I, I thought that was just a fantastic uniform, and if they were smart enough to leave it alone, I thought that had the chance to become a modern classic. And they did not leave it alone, and I feel like every little incremental step they've taken has, has been... Well, some of the steps weren't just incremental. I mean, they, first they added those weird sort of whisker stripes, right, like down the sides of the jersey into mm-hmm. the pants, and that wasn't good. They, they de-emphasized the gold, uh, and then they had that awful two-tone helmet, which is unquestionably the worst helmet in NFL history, <laughs> you know, where it was part gold and part black. Um, nowadays, I would say they're, they're more of just sort of a, a boring uniform rather than an aggressively bad uniform, which is what they were for a while with that, with that two-tone helmet. Um, but uh, they, if they, it, again, they, it wasn't broke, but they fixed it. That, that initial uh, Mark Brunelli or a uniform. Yeah, and at least, you know, somewhat bland is better than two-tone helmet, at least in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the Orlando Magic, you know, this is a team that has not had a long existence either. Um, I think their pinstripes of their, of their early years are their best. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think the Magic generally have, have had a, a number of pretty good looks over the years. Uh, I'm usually not a fan of pinstripes on basketball uniforms because the players are so tall, right? Like, they don't really need pinstripes. But I agree, the Magic pinstripe looked good. Um, and they've had, like, a good logo. Um, like, uh, that, you know, the, the, churn, the level of churn in the NBA for uniforms is much faster than any other sports. Uh, like the NFL has a five-year rule. You can't change your uniforms more than once every five years, and most teams go a lot longer than that. In the NBA, it seems like more, it's more like a five-week rule. Uh, and there's just a lot more turnover. And so I would have to go back and like look through the, the Magic's uniform history to pick out the era that was the best. But overall, I think of the Magic as a reasonably well-dressed team. Not like an upper echelon, like perfect-looking, you know, classic-looking team, but like a team that doesn't have an embarrassing look out there. Okay. Um, UCF, University of Central Florida, they become a, a more and more of a brand name. And uh, they, right before their run started, you know, introduced the uniform combinations, much all much like what Oregon kind of does. What are your thoughts on, on that and, and teams that go to that heavy multi-combo uh, opportunity? Well, that's when, when we talk about churn, as I was saying before, in college sports, I mean, it's, it's really like a revolving door now. The sometimes multiple times within a season. Uh, I think they're okay, but I think with um, it's tricky in college sports because even if you like something, uh, it's, it's bound to change. Like, it's not week to week, at least season to season. Uh, that 
that seems to be the approach now that the apparel companies, uh, by which I mean Nike, Adidas, and uh, Under Armour, are taking with college sports, where they're, they're, there's really no, like, except for a few of the legacy programs like Penn State or Alabama or UNC, there tend, uh, UNC with basketball, there tends not to be a lot of visual stability. There's so much change. Uh, and you mentioned Oregon, where the whole point was change, right? Like, they, normally in branding, the idea is to have a consistent uh, front-facing uh, image and what you stand for. And at, at Oregon, the brand was, we don't stand for anything except, you know, we're constantly changing and evolving. That works up to a point. Uh, it worked well for Oregon in part because when they started doing that, it was also when their program was getting much better. Uh, and they, they suddenly got much more uh, successful on the field. Uh, but think of another school that did that, and they're deviating away from Florida here, but think of the University of Maryland, uh, you know, which basically tried to copy what Oregon did. Uh, Under Armour was trying to do for Maryland what uh, what Nike had done for Oregon uh, with all these flat, you know, Maryland flag pattern-based uniforms and the constant change in them and, like, how can we, you know, outdo ourselves and be more outrageous each week. Uh, but Maryland hasn't done that well on the field, not like Oregon did initially. And even Oregon's fortunes have, have dipped now as well, and they've kind of dialed back the uniform outrageousness a bit. Uh, and I think the lesson there is that if you want to dress like a clown and you win, you look like a winner. But if you dress like a clown and you lose, you just look like a clown. <laughs> and so I, I think, you know, when these, these teams that like to push the envelope, that's fine as far as it goes, but you better deliver on the field or, or you're just going to look laughable out there. So I'll ask you real quick about uh, my one of my, my favorite teams, the Dallas Cowboys. And until I read Unowatch, I didn't realize how much variation in colors they had with their white uniform. But it, it you know it still works probably because of the of the the white jersey and the helmet. But it is it, is, it does amaze me how many different nuances there are. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of the Cowboys uh, uniform myself, even though I hate the Cowboys. I always root against them. I, I grew up that way, but uh, I I like their basic white uniform. But uh, they do have an odd variety of shades of blue going on there, and that really bugs some of my readers, like, you know, the, the sort of OCD-type readers. Like, and, and to be fair, they absolutely should make those shades of blue consistent. The shades of blue on the numbers and the stripes, the sleeve stripes, does not match the shade of blue on the, uh, the pants or the helmet, uh, the helmet stripes or the star on the helmet. Uh, of course, they famously have two different colors of silver pants, like the... the basic sort of natural silver that they wear with their blue jerseys uh, and uh, the sort of seafoam silver that they wear with their white jerseys. Uh, it's an unusually muddled visual program, but they've stuck with it so long now that it's, it's just who they are. Uh, and I, I, I think there's a little charm in that sometimes, these, these teams where not everything matches up or where there's a little inconsistency. Uh, you know, people talk about the Yankees being so classic. You know, the NY on the Yankees jersey does not match the NY on their cap, and it never has. It's always been a little different. Um, until last year, I think, the Detroit Tigers had a very distinct D on their jersey compared to the one on their cap. They Then they decided last season to make them consistent. Uh, they went with the cap for the imposed the cap version onto the jersey. Um, I always kind of liked those little inconsistencies. It was like a sign of from an era when things weren't always as like computerized and, and corporatized and it was it was like a little mark of humanity that people could make mistakes and, you know, somebody Xeroxed the wrong the wrong logo and sent it to the manufacturer. 
capture or something like that, and it got enshrined and became part of the team's visual history and, and program. I kind of like that. Uh, and so I, I kind of like that about the Cowboys, too, the inconsistent shades of blue. Does one sport in particular drive interest on your side, or are they all pretty much about the same? Um, the, like, I would say, just like in the rest of sports media, the NFL moves the needle uh, in terms of interest. Um, people are also very passionate about um, uh, college football. Uh, baseball is the most interesting sport, uh, or I guess it offers the most uh, opportunity to write about just because it's the best documented sport. Baseball has always been uh, really good about documenting its own history, so there are much deeper photo, ar- photo archives. Um, there's been more research into baseball uniforms. Of course, there are more baseball games. There are literally more games. You know, They play a 162-game schedule, so there's just a lot more visual data out there to, to play with You know, if, if you're researching or, or looking for photos of this or that. Um, and so baseball offers sort of the deepest archive in that regard. Um, Hockey, I often find to be the most interesting to write about, just because um, hockey, the hockey uniform, is the broadest, biggest palette, the deepest canvas. Like if you think of a hockey uniform, every part of the player's body is covered except his face, and so that that gives the designer all kinds of opportunities for design. Uh, the jersey in hockey is untucked. So the, the lower part of the jersey, you can have those belly stripes or torso stripes, as they're sometimes called, wrapping around the lower part of the jersey. You can't do that in other sports. Uh, by contrast, the other, you know, the flip side of that, in basketball, you don't have sleeves, you don't have long pants, most players don't wear high socks. Um, you're required to have a, a number eating up a lot of the real estate on both the front and back of the jersey. Uh, basketball is really the biggest challenge for a designer, and as a result, often the least interesting uniform to write about. Uh, so, uh, but we try to cover all of it. You know, <laughs> we try to, to give every sport its uh, its fair share on UniWatch. And you know, obviously, when you started, it was just you. Now you've got uh, guys that work with you, and and legions and legions of readers who who basically are like stringers for you, right? Yeah, while I'm sitting here talking to you, uh, you know, the, the UniWatch readership is acting as my eyes and ears out there. They're sending me emails. They're tweeting things at me, things that they're noticing while they're watching a game or they found an old photo on the web that shows something or whatever. And so, yeah, UniWatch and I have sort of become the hub uh, for, I guess you would say, a crowdsourced project, which wasn't my initial plan when I started uh, UniWatch, but it, it's how it's worked out, and I'm, I'm so fortunate to have a passionate reader base that, that's interested in uh, in the subject matter and wants to share what they discover and what they see, and, and of course, we always give them credit. You know, if I write about something that a reader sends in, we always credit it, and they like seeing their name in print, uh, and so uh, it's a good feedback loop there, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to the readership. Well, I tell you what, I'm a big fan of the site as well, and uh, congratulations again on 20 years of of Uniwatch, and uh, again, thank you for taking the time to be with us. My pleasure. Uh, well, as you can probably tell from hearing me ramble, I like talking about this stuff. <laughs> and we like hearing about it and reading about it, too. Thanks again, Paul. You're welcome. Take care. And you haven't been to Paul Lucas and his team's daily musings at Uniwatch, and shame on you if you haven't. Go to uni-watch.com, that's uni-watch.com, and become hooked like me. And also celebrating an anniversary, it was September 1979, 40 years ago that ESPN was born. 
And as part of that uh, 40-year celebration, we got a reunion of the big show. And Patrick, I'm Keith Olbermann. It was 22 years ago when we did our last show together, and at the time you said, you know what, how about we take a break and we'll see other anchors. What happened? As you said at the end of the Ringer piece, it's like Led Zeppelin, he continued. <laughs> There's no reunion tour. We did it. It's done. And yet, here we are. Shall we start on the yeah, off chance somebody's still watching? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so great to see Dan and Keith on the Sports Center desk. And uh, it's amazing when you think about it. And it's one of those things that kind of legend grows over, over time that. You know, Dan and Keith only did four and a half years together. Seems like ten. But their greatness was was just outstanding, as both would tell you they were basically performing for each other and, and may have, you know, can you top this a little bit? And it was a, a, a great, great edition of Sports Center. I also very much like the Bob Lee Charlie Steiner version that was on earlier in the evening. But uh, Dan and Keith certainly made it, uh, you know, everybody that wanted to be in in sports broadcasting wanted to be on SportsCenter a lot because of guys like Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. And, you know, I've been a big detractor of ESPN over the years, uh, very critical of the four-letter, uh, just because I think they've become so big and they feel like, well, we're going to tell you how we how you should watch sports. And we're setting the narrative. But you can't deny you know, what they have become and, and, and you can't deny what they have meant to the world of sports, not just for broadcasting, but for the sports landscape in general. When you think about, you know, they started off, you know, with, 15-minute sports centers, and they had to run a lot of programming like Australian Rules Football, uh, exercise videos. <laughs> yes, I was in love with Denise Austin, too. Um, and just, you know, anything they could find until they started, you know, getting able to carry college football. And they become a big force. You know, they're, they're as big a force in the college football playoff, if not the biggest. And... You know what they've done with the NFL and baseball, and and everybody's had to up their game because of ESPN. And uh, I remember, you know, 1984 when I was uh, uh, doing a, a Chris Russo show, and I was filling in one night, and I got to interview the general Bob Lee on their fifth anniversary. And you know, back then you're wondering, you know, people are thinking 24/7 sports. This is crazy. It's not going to last. And 35 years after that, they're celebrating their 40th anniversary. One last thought before we call it a show. Um, it was kind of interesting as um, Paul Lucas was talking about the Yankees. It kind of got me thinking a little bit more about Antonio Brown. And I'll tell you why. Because he pulled a George Costanza. You remember the episode where George was trying to get fired for the New York Yankees? <laughs> Doing everything he possibly could with the culmination of him dragging the World Series trophy across the parking lot. I guess Antonio Brown's next trick in his bag was to drag the Lombardi trophy around the grounds <laughs> in Oakland. So I don't know why that parallel came to me, but that's where that's where my mind goes sometimes. And with that, we are done here. 
Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Allen underscore 88, on Facebook at Jeff Allen 88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. It's made from the finest ingredients so it stops itching, heals hot spots, and painful inflamed skin. Kramer's Salve contains a proprietary blend of neem, an ingredient known for its healing properties. A 4-ounce 6-month supply, including shipping, is just $30, and the 2-ounce 3-month supply, including shipping, is only $20. Help your dog end the itch and hot spot cycle. Order today at Kramersalve.net. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E. LVE.net.